Aloha Church. I have the privilege of introducing our speaker this weekend. Now, our speaker is not a guest. Many of you know him. However, there are a lot of you who may not know him, especially those who are newer to our church ohana. And, uh, and our speaker this weekend is the one and only Mark Gallagher. He came to Hawaii in 1961 when his dad, Harold Gallagher, was called to be the senior pastor of Kaimiki Christian Church. Mark uh, attended school here on the island. He, he went to Kaimiki Middle School. He graduated from Kalani High, and, uh, and he went on to pursue uh, education. He has uh, his undergraduate degree, he has degrees in theology, and he has a PhD in history, emphasizing uh, Pacific history. And for uh, six years or seven years, he was a missionary, a missionary in Fiji, teaching pastors in Fiji about how to minister and how to be pastors when they go back to the islands that they were from. Mark uh, was the principal of KCS and retired in 2017. Mark Gallagher has been uh, an elder at KCC for many, many years. He is a great man. He is a walking history book with a lot to offer. And in fact, he's now finishing his book on the history of the early Christian missionaries to the Hawaii Islands. So if you would, please welcome Mark Gallagher. Aloha KCC family. 2020 is going to be remembered for a lot of things, maybe particularly the situation that we now find ourselves in. But it is also the 200 year anniversary of the coming of the first missionaries to Hawaii. I'm excited to be able to share with you some thoughts on the opening chapters of a book that I've been working on for several years, uh, entitled Kapalapala Ame Kapule, The Planting of the Christian Faith in Hawaii. Starting at the beginning of the story is what I like to do, and today I'm really going to be laying the groundwork for the actual arrival of the missionaries here in 1820. I'd like to have us consider together the answers to three questions. Why Hawaii? Why 1820? And by whom was this uh, mission venture made possible? The short answer to why Hawaii is that there was a spiritual need here. Why 1820 is that Interest in missions arose in New England in the early 1800s. And the by whom are those individuals from New England and Hawaii who God raised up for such a time as this? Now, some of you may be sitting there thinking, wow, I just heard the shortest sermon I've ever heard. But uh, please allow me to put a little bit of flesh on those bones. The traditional Hawaiian society was organized into two classes. At the top were the ali'i, the chief, and then the vast majority were the maka'ainana, the commoners. One became an ali'i or was designated as an ali'i by virtue of having a genealogy that you were able to trace back directly to the gods. 
The more direct your line was to the gods, the higher your sacred status was, the greater the mana or power that you possessed, and the more deference that was accorded to you. Interwoven with the concept of sacred status and mana was that of the Kapu system. The Kapu system main purpose was to spell out the rituals that needed to be followed to avoid displeasing the god and incurring their anger. The Kapu considered all aspects of life, such as, interestingly enough, uh, social distancing, um, foods that were permitted to be eaten by who, behavior in the temples, and so on. The consequence for violating a kapu was usually death. The Hawaiian religion consisted, consisted of major gods, among whom Ku, the god of war, played a major role because of the constant battles going on between Ali'i fighting for the right to increase their domain. The temples of Ku were, were mainly uh, sacrificial temples connected to victory and warfare or dealing with kapu breakers. In either case, human sacrifice was needed. There are also countless other gods like Pele of the Volcano, Laka of the Hula, uh, gods for the farmers, gods for the fishermen, and so on, and the countless family gods, the Almakua, such as the lizard and the, and the shark. Now, for almost 40 years, some Westerners who had been passing through or living in Hawaii um, had something to say about their god, but None of them seemed to give much information either by way of word or uh, actions as to the nature of that God. It was with conviction then that Opukaha'ia, who we'll talk about more, declared in 1815 that he had set his mind on returning to Hawaii as a missionary to my poor countrymen who are yet living in the shadow of death without knowledge of the true God and ignorant of the future world. They had no Bible to read, no Sabbath, and all of these things were unknown to them. You know, Opukaha'ia's heart reflected Paul's teaching in Romans 10. How can they believe in the one in whom they've not heard? And how can they hear without someone sending them, preaching to them? And how could they preach unless they are sent? In answering the questions, why 1820 and by whom, we need to think about New England. New England is where the Puritans came seeking freedom for themselves to practice their religion, which they believed was purified from um, non-biblical teachings and practices. But by the 1770s, the Puritan identity had been 
replaced by uh, congregational church member. The American Revolutionary War and the efforts after the war to rebuild the, uh, to build a new nation and rebuild the economy. Uh, influences from Europe, uh, we can label them as liberal theology, all contributed to a rather state, sorry state of existence as we move into the 1800s for the churches. So in the opening years of the 1800s, congregational churches experienced what is now known as the Second Great Awakening. This awakening not only stirred spiritual uh, interests within the churches, it also led in 1810 to the formation of the first American Foreign Mission Society. Headquarters in Boston, it took as its name, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missioners. For good reason, they are referred to as the ABC FM. At the same time in God's plan, I believe, an increasing number of trading ships returning to home port in the eastern seaboard of the U.S. brought with them Hawaiians who had signed up uh, as crewmen. When they, uh, when they finished the voyage, the captains would dismiss the crew, including the Hawaiians, and they were on their own to make future arrangements from there. Key to our story is that Henry Opukaha'ia and Thomas Hopu, who arrived in um, 1809 on the same ship, William Kanui, who arrived separately about the same time, and John Honolii, who arrived in 1815, were taken under the wings of ABCFM leaders. These leaders mentored them, housed them in their family's home, set set Christian examples through their lifestyle uh, that were quite different than that they'd been exposed to aboard ship and in the port cities, and even created a school for them to uh, provide them a Christian education and skills to prepare them for uh, the task of being a missionary. The fruit of their investment in the lives of these Hawaiians is that in 1816, the ABCFM, which had sent a couple missions already to Asia, but didn't have any fruit really to, to report, uh, began planning to send missionaries to Hawaii with Opukaha'i as a leader and uh, to be joined by Hopu, Kanui, and Honolii. I'd like to share with you now some of the events and qualities in Opukaha'ia's lives that have had an impact on my own life. Called Obukaya in America, Opukaha'ia was born in Hawaii about 1870 on what we call the Big Island today. 
When he was about 10 years old, a rebellion broke out that involved, that threatened actually his family. They went into hiding but were discovered. One man struck down his parents and another man thrust a spear into his infant brother who he was carrying on his back. They spared Opukahaia's life. When an opportunity arose, he fled to Kealakekua, where he had an uncle who was living there. His uncle was a kahuna, a priest. He and his wife raised him, and he, the, his uncle, um, taught um, Opukaha'ia the ins and outs of, of his profession. Although his uncle and aunt raised him as a son, Opukaha'ia was restless. When he was about 20, he signed up as a sailor aboard a trading vessel that anchored in Kealakekua. Hopu, who was about 20, came aboard as a cabin boy. They departed Hawaii in 1808 and arrived the following year in New Haven, Connecticut, where their captain, Caleb Brentnall, lived and where Yale University was located. The Brentnells were Christians and they had Opukahaia live with them for several months. They had him attend church with them. And he recalled that he wished to learn more about the Christian God, but lacked someone to interpret for him, leaving him frustrated after attending many worship services where he found it difficult to understand the preacher. One evening, Yale student Edwin Dwight, who was one of the early leaders of the promoting foreign missions, saw Opukahaia uh, sitting on the steps at Yale crying. When he learned that his tears came because he did not have a teacher to teach him, Dwight asked Opukahaia, well, what if I teach you? Opukahaia was very much affirmative to that. And that same night, they went back to Dwight's dorm and began the tutoring process that continued on for several months. About the end of October of 1809, Samuel Mills Jr., often called the father of American foreign missions, came to New Haven. He met with his old friend Dwight, and Dwight in turn introduced him to Opukahaia. When Mills found out that the housing arrangements he had were uh, no longer going to be open to him, he arranged to have Opukahaia travel a few miles north in uh, Connecticut to live with his family the Mill family. They were great promoters of the missionary cause themselves. At the Mill's house, Opukahaia read the Bible. He went to church each Sunday, and Mrs. Mills taught him the minister catechism. But all was not well. 
It troubled him that many ministers visited him. He came to dread these visitors, recalling that I would not wish to be in the room where they were, neither did I wish to come near a minister for the reason that he should talk to me about God, whom I hated to hear. I was told by them about heaven and hell, but, not, but I did not pay any attention to what they said. As he later put it, the more I tried to see it, the more it appeared to be impenetrability. That was his word, not mine. I thought if I should die then, I must certainly be cast off forever. Hopukahaiya struggled with these thoughts for five years. During this period, he studied the Bible, he prayed often, he told other Hawaiians living in New England about the true God. He expressed his desire to go with Thomas Hopu back to Hawaii to tell the people about heaven and hell. But he had no assurance that he himself was saved. How can this be? Partly it was due to his being subjected to long theological discourses in English. But even more daunting was the teaching by Second Great Awakening preachers that you had to go through several hoops to verify that you were one of God's chosen. You needed a conversion experience, a testimony that you had been called by God. You had to demonstrate that you had sufficient knowledge of theology and doctrine. You had to take and pass an exam based on the Westminster Catechism, the shorter version of which had 107 questions. Finally, if you passed the exam, you were put on probation for several months. During this probation, you had to show evidence through your lifestyle I might even say through your good works, that you were serious about following Christ. Again, you had to pass through these hoops before you could be baptized and accepted as a church member. As challenging as this process was, the Hawaiians in New England at least had models to follow. Hopu, for example, after an extended spiritual struggle of his own, attended a revival meeting one night where he recalled that many sinners were pricked to the heart, some rejoicing and praising the Lord, some crying out to the preacher. It appeared that many sinners received the Lord Jesus in their hearts that night. I listened to all these things which were said to them by that that time, and especially to those whose hearts were made willing to receive the Lord Jesus. And perhaps I thought, this is the language of those whose hearts were really changed by the power of the Holy Spirit. After the meeting, while I was walking towards home, behold, the Lord Jesus met me by the way like a burning and shining light around me 
and the burden of my sins was directly gone from me. I found myself in a new world. And he had also found the right testimony. When the missionaries began seeking converts in Hawaii, most of the Hawaiians did not have access to such models. As a quick aside, the restoration movement of which churches like KCC trace their heritage arose in the early 1800s, partly in reaction to these non-biblical hoops that one had to jump through to have uh, a conviction that, yes, I am a follower of Jesus. Once Opukahaia's spiritual status was settled in late 1814, there was no turning back for him. When word began to spread that he desired to return to Hawaii to proclaim the gospel, one pastor wrote that Opukahaia promises in due time to be either an excellent interpreter of a gospel missionary, or a missionary himself, or a school instructor, or all three to his benighted countrymen. As part of his preparation for the missionary task, Opukahaia mastered English, Hebrew, Latin, and geometry. He translated the book of Genesis directly from Hebrew into Hawaiian. Opukahaia's intelligence and scholarship impresses me, but it is his life that inspires me. He was devoted about praying privately and powerful when doing so in public. He kept a pocket testament as a constant companion. When he once forgot his testament after changing clothes before uh, traveling to visit uh, a fellow countryman, he remarked upon his return, blind man don't walk very safely without his staff. Although he mastered academics, he never forgot how he struggled when he first came to America. One of his few complaints was directed against those who used fancy words when they preached. He argued, if they preach to all people, they ought to preach so that all can understand. The people, he reasoned, can't carry dictionary to meeting. He did not wait until he had finished his theological education to begin his ministry. He sought out the other Hawaiian youths living in New England. He visited them, counseled them, prayed with them, exhorted them to be committed followers of Christ, and wrote letters to them when distance separated them. They looked up to him as a friend an older brother, a model of the Christian life. Opukahai had written in 1815 that I expect to spend the remaining part of my days in the service of our glorious Redeemer, if the Almighty should spare my life. 
Opukahai's intention was to love and serve the Lord in Hawaii, but such was not to be the case. His hopes and dreams would have to await on others. In January 1818, in the middle of New England weather, winter, he came down with typhus fever, a disease that racks the body with pain. As the days turned into weeks, it became obvious that his body was wasting away. On the 16th of February, he asked that his friends gather together in his room. He asked them to remember that they too would one day face death. He challenged them to make their peace with God. His friends sat around him with broken hearts. Those gathered downstairs could hear loud sobbing throughout the room. On the 18th, he told his doctor that the pain was gone. A few minutes later, he breathed his last. Opukahaia went to his reward, but his spirit continued to make its presence felt. The news of his death produced a great surge in interest in missions in general, and in Hawaii in particular. Hiram Bingham, who would assume the role of leader of the first missionary company, wrote, Who will go for us? Obukaya is dead. The eyes of the friends of missions and of the Hawaiian youth seem to have turned to me. His story so touched the lives of the Chamberlain, Whitney, and Loomis families that they gave up their plans so that they could go to Hawaii. On October 23, 1819, these four families, three other American couples, and Hopu, Kanui, and Honolii set sail for America. At their commissioning ceremony, they were exhorted to remember the legacy of Opukahaia and to do their best to fulfill his dream. Opukahaia was ready. He was ready to go to, to Hawaii, but he is also ready to die. He died whether it meant in Hawaii or as it turned out in New England. I hope that we can give some thought today to what about us as individuals in a church? Are we ready for whatever the Lord wills for our life and our church? And perhaps we can learn from Opukahai and how his life um, was devoted to others. And think about the people, the leaders of the ABCFM that invested themselves in these Hawaiian youth. Maybe we can take some inspiration from them. Well, a little postscript. Opukahaia's memoirs, the story of his life, traveled with the missionaries to Hawaii. On a Sunday afternoon, four months after they had arrived, Sybil Bingham, gathered together some of the women she had been teaching English to. She shared with them Opukaha's story with John Honolii 
interpreting. The impact was such that two weeks later, the Honolulu missionaries decided to begin using his memoirs as the basis for their Sunday school lessons. Week by week, the audience listened to the narrative with increasing interest. When the story came to the closing scenes of Opukaha'ia's life, many tenderly wept. This was a great encouragement to the missionaries. It was the first evidence that the hearts of the people could be touched by the gospel message. God bless you.